Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Thanks, Bernie. Um, it's always interesting to see sort of um, where we're at in terms of of our um, understanding of work and those kinds of things. So what I want us to do first is um, just break into groups, not large groups, but maybe three or four in a group or whatever, and let's discuss... <clears throat> Um, how can you serve God at work? Okay, now, so I want you to make a list of the different ways in which you can serve God through your work. Or uh, look at it in a different way. Uh, make a list of the different ways in which you can um, express your purpose through work. Okay? Or another way of looking at it is different ways in which your f- faith in your work, um, inter- you can integrate your faith in your work. Okay, so, so break into groups of three or four or something like that, and one person can sort of be the scribe, and then you just write down, just make a bullet point list uh, of, of the different ways in which that can be done. Okay, go for it. Take a, about three or so minutes to do that. See how uh, complete a list you can make. Okay, I'm going to ask you for some feedback in a moment, Um, but before I do, um, for those who don't know me, I'm sure most of you know me, but for those who don't know me, my name is Eni Swart, and uh, I find find um, the whole discussion very interesting and very fascinating because, I mean, to what extent does God's purpose extend in our lives? I mean, for instance, was it God's purpose that Rochelle and I married? Did he want coffee and cream to make a few little cappuccinos? Or could I have just married any woman? Could Rochelle just have married any man and it would have been God's purpose? Okay? It's, it's an interesting thought, right? It's, a, it's an important thought. And, and I think sometimes we have to think about these things. Um, and what, what, I, what I want to do with, with, with these um, evenings is not necessarily give all the answers. I want to start conversations. I'm hoping, and, and both this, week, this, um, this evening and next month, we're going to be talking about purpose at work specifically. Um, and I like what Rieta said. Uh, I mean, we spend the, probably the largest portion of our waking hours at work. 
So if we cannot find purpose at work, then we're living most of our waking hours without purpose. And, and, and that should be a bit of a problem. That should be a bit of a challenge to us. And I, I think um, many of us, you know, go that way. You know, we, we, we say, okay, I just, I, I work to live. You know, in other words, I, I work so I can earn enough money so I could, can, you know, eat and live indoors and wear clothes so that I can do other things that I think fulfill my purpose. You know, so it's, it's very easy to see life, uh, to see work as a, almost a necessary evil, right? And, and, and for many of us who are Christians, we think, ah, but, you know, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and part of the fall was that God cursed Adam to work, and by the sweat of your brow shall you, you know, do your work. And the problem with that is obviously there was work before that. Not only did Adam work before that, but God worked before that. So we cannot just see work as a necessary evil. So the, the, the one extreme to which we can go is to see work as a necessary evil. Okay, I must work. I'll work at what I'm good at. I'm not going to enjoy it. I'm not going to feel any purpose or calling in it but I'm going to at least earn money to take care of myself and my family and then do the things I want to do and, uh, you know, that I feel actually is my calling and my purpose. So that's the one extreme. The other extreme is to say, no, I, I live to work. In other words, I, work is, is the main place I find my purpose. Uh, the, the problem with that is that that, that need to prove yourself, that need to do well, it becomes such a heavy burden that it actually crushes you. What happens if you lose your job? What, I, mean, I mean, so many people, they, they, you know, say, say someone you know, working on in investment and, and the stock exchange and so on, um, we saw so many sad stories when the markets crashed in the early 2000s of people committing suicide. People were rich and then overnight almost lost most or everything that they had and then just not being able to deal with it. For them, it wasn't just losing their job or, or, or failing in their job. For them, it was so bad they committed suicide. Then there were others who you know, were sad, who were upset about it, who were... This, this, you know, to, to whom it was also not pleasant, but they picked themselves up and they moved on. So clearly their work wasn't everything to them. And, and I think those are two of the easy extremes to fall into. You know, you can f- fall off the one side of the ditch where you find no purpose in your work, or you can fall off the other side of the ditch where you basically idolize your work and find all your purpose and all your meaning in life in your work. And, and what I want us to see is um, I think the Bible gives us a third option, a better option, which um, doesn't cause us to fall into either of those two traps. But let me maybe just <clears throat> recap a little bit because I see um, quite a few of, um, of us weren't here last week. So let me just recap a little bit uh, of what we sp- spoke about last month. Um, one of the things that we said was that purpose is 
and the intent with which something was created. In other words, um, purpose is the reason for which something exists, was created, or was accomplished. Okay? So, for instance, uh, I used the example a few times of a pen or a pencil. You know, a pen is to write with. Okay? You can use it for other purposes. You know? You can even use it for really bad purposes, you know, if you cross with someone. <laughs> uh, but then you'd be abusing it. But the only way to know its purpose is to know what, you know, what it was created for. Uh, and, and it's the same with us. We can be used. We can use ourselves. And other people can use us for purposes that we weren't created for. Uh, but that will be abuse. So uh, one author said, the misunderstanding of purpose inevitably leads to abuse. Okay? One of the problems is if we don't think about purpose and we don't know what our purpose is, we will end up abusing our own lives because we don't know what they were for. And we will very easily fall into the trap of allowing other people to abuse our lives because we don't know what we're for, what we were created for, what we were intended for. So purpose is important. Okay? It's, it's really important to think about this. It's not just a sort of a deep philosophical question. It has intense practical implications for everyday life. Um, it, what you think your purpose is, whether you think you have a purpose, determines almost every decision you make on a day-to-day basis. What you eat, what you wear, what you decide to study, what you decide to choose as a career, who you choose as a life partner, etc., uh, etc. Et How you spend your spare time. All of that, you know, a big sort of reason behind the choices you make without you even knowing it necessarily is what you think, whether you think you have a purpose and what you think that purpose is. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so last time one of the things that we said was there's different levels of purpose. There's purpose of being and purpose of doing. The purpose of all pens are basically the same. And, and likewise, there's a purpose of being that we as human beings have that are all the same. That's why we're all the same. So in, in some senses, our purpose is not unique. And we're going to look a little bit more in detail at that um, in a moment. But, um, you know, there is a difference between the black pen with which I fill in my marriage register, you know, when I marry people, and the red pen with which a teacher marks the papers, or the pencil with which I write something that I want to erase, you know, or just maybe pencil it into my calendar, but I can actually erase it and pencil something else in. Or, you know, the fancy pen, you know, that I pull out when people sign the marriage register, you know, because I don't want them just to, you know, use a little plastic pen. I want them to use a nice fancy pen that's going to look nice with the wedding dress, and when they take the photos that they're going to look at for the rest of their lives. So, so, you know, the slightly different purposes, all of them writing, but writing for slightly different purposes. And I think in the same way, we as human beings also have basically the same purpose on a fundamental being level, but then on a a more specific doing level, we do have differences in how we express that purpose. Um, I don't know if that answers your question uh, to some extent at least. Good question. Um, Another thing that we said was that if purpose is the intention with which something was created, for which something was created, then you cannot have a purpose without a creator. Okay? So first you have to acknowledge that there is a creator and that my purpose comes from him. He determines my purpose. Okay? That means that your purpose is not something you determine, it's something you discover. Okay? 
if we try and determine our purpose, we're looking in the wrong place, and we will not find it, and we will live our lives without purpose. But if we approach purpose as something we need to discover, then we have a better chance of finding it. And another thing that we said was that there are certain, certain circumstances that can actually prevent you from determining your purpose. If you are in certain circumstances, it will be very difficult for you to find a purpose. In other words, you cannot determine the purpose of a pen unless you have paper and language and readers. Okay? So many people place themselves in circumstances where they make it almost impossible for themselves to determine their purpose. Because they're not around the things that will show them what their purpose is. Okay? Um, <clears throat> and then another thing that we said was, we're just recapping now, um, that um, if you have a, you can only have a purpose if you're a means to an end. Okay? A pen is not an end in itself. It's something that I write with to other people or whatever. A shovel is not a mean, is, is not an end in itself. It's something that I use to dig with. Okay, a computer is not a means to an is not an end in itself. It's a means to an end for me to, to help me do the work that I'm doing faster. A car, contrary to popular belief in places like Valcom and Boxburg, is not an end in itself. <laughs> it's a means to an end to get me from point A to point B. <laughs> Right? You've seen those, you know those guys in Valcom and, and, you know, Boxburg and so on. They usually wear Alpmeisterk like MPs and their cars are, are really warmed up nicely and they have these, these, you know, amazing sound systems and you hear the car before you see it like, as it goes past you. Um, but, 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 you know, contrary to what they believe, actually a car is not an end in itself, it's a means to an end. And likewise, Unless we accept that we're not an end in ourselves, but a means to an end, we can never have purpose. In other words, the only being that doesn't have a purpose is God. Because he's not a means to an end, he's an, he is the end. Okay, just something funny to think about. Um, <laughs> now, here's what I want us to do. Um, I, I'm, I'm sort of... I was sort of wondering how should I approach this. Um, I want to share a little bit um, out of Genesis, you know, one, two, and three, and so on. Is there anyone who's, who's not familiar with those passages? You know, I don't just assume we all know them. Everyone know at least Genesis one, two, and three. Genesis one is the account of how God creates the heaven and the earth, and there was all that stuff. In the, it says in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, uh, and it was empty and void, had no form, and the spirit of God was hovering over the deep, and God said, "Let there be light," and there was light. And he separated the, the water and the dry land. Uh, and then he started, you know, you know, calling all kinds of things forth, you know, created the, 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 the fish in the sea by speaking to the sea, the birds in the air, the stars, uh, eventually created plants and animals. Um, and every time he said, he looked at what he did and he said, and it was good. It was good. It was good. And then he created mankind. He first said, let us create man in our image according to our likeness uh, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the air and all that kind of stuff. And that was rule over creation. And then he said he looked at what he created after creating mankind and said it was very good. And that was in, in six days. And then on the seventh day, it says God rested. He looked at all that he had made and he rested from the work. It specifically says the work that he had done. Okay? So um, we're all familiar with, with that. And then we, we're obviously familiar with how God says to 
to Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. And how God institutes marriage. And then in chapter 3, we have the whole story about the snake, you know, confronting the woman and eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and, you know, the curse and all the bad stuff that come from that. Um, so you're all familiar with that. Anyone not familiar with that? Okay. So I'm assuming that. So let's, uh, let's look at it um, in this way. I want to look at, um, at work. Uh, I was thinking, how am I going to do this? So I, I want to look at work through a, it's going to be, this is going to be a bit superficial, sort of, it's going to be like a helicopter ride. So a big picture helicopter ride over work, looking at it through the, the lenses of a Christian worldview. And we're going to look at creation, fall, redemption, and recreation. And how does, what does that tell us if we look at, a Christ, at, at work through a Christian worldview? What does that tell us about our work? Okay. Now, the first thing that we see that's very interesting in creation, we're probably at this first one, we'll probably spend most of our time and then spend slightly less time in the, in the rest. The very interesting thing, the very first thing we see God doing in Scripture, in the very first verse of Scripture is working. Now, for us who've grown up in a Christian culture, and most of us probably in Christian homes, that's not surprising because that's all we know. But do you know that there's almost no other religion in the world for which that is true? Apart from the Judeo-Christian religion. The whole thing of work not being a necessary evil, uh, an ordered creation, and God creating humans for a purpose and giving them work is is unique in world religions. Did you know that? I mean, if you think about, about it this way, most of the, the Greek religions, the old Greek religions, they talk about the golden age when gods and, and, and humans lived on the earth together. Now you might say, well, that sounds a little bit like the Garden of Eden. Yes, but with a big difference. In that golden age, not, neither gods nor men worked. Work was seen as demeaning. Okay. Almost all the creation accounts outside of the Judeo-Christian uh, um, tradition, the, the, the universe was created in other ways, but not through work. Often, very often, interestingly enough, it was through a battle. You know, the gods would fight one another, battle one another, and then when they tore one another apart, you know, sort of the universe was the result of all of that. And God created... Contrary to that, he created creation not as um, a warrior fighting a battle, but as a craftsman executing a plan. Very different. So we, we look at this, and for us who have grown up in sort of a, a, a Judeo-Christian context, this is not surprising, but it's unique. There, there's, the other religions in the world are not like this. The gods of the other religions don't work. In fact, most of them created humans to do the work that they didn't want to do. But the God of the Bible, the very first thing we find him doing is working. Okay? And, and, and that's, that's very significant. Okay? And then we see before the fall, when he puts man in the garden of Eden, he gives him work. He says, take care of the garden. In other words, the work is not a consequence of the fall. But not only that, let me, let me just take a step back. God's not only working, but he, he, the work of creation that he does, he creates the world in seven days. In other words, in a working week. In a working week. I mean, all of that we get from 
um, from the Bible. So, so much of what we assume and what we don't even think about in, um, in terms of work, whether, it, whether it's people who are secular, whether it's people who believe in Christianity or not, actually comes from the Bible. Okay? So, that's the first thing I, I want you to see. Um, the, the second thing I want you to, to see is the following. Um, God created man for a few different reasons. Now, b- before, okay, before I get to that, let me, let me, let me get feedback from you because I want to I see sort of what you came up with. In terms of relating faith and work, purpose and work, whatever it is, what did you come up with? So I'm going to give like each group, you know, a chance to sort of shout out one thing. Okay, who's, who's, who wants to go first? And you want to go first? <laughs> okay, anyone? Yes. So, so, so basically what you're saying is sort of a godly example. Okay. Anyone else? In other words, in, 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 the, in the character that we portray, you know, represent God and, you know, godly character. In other words... Um, you know, living in a way that, how shall I put it? Um, say you were working in government, you know, a lot of people would want to, say, be corrupt to make money, benefit themselves wrongly. But if you're a Christian, you're going to say, no, I'm not going to do it. Even if I can, even if I can get away with it, you know? So some people say, that, like, the 11th commandment is, thou shalt not get caught. <laughs> you know? So it says, I'll do it as long as I don't get caught. But, but you say, no, even if I can do it without getting caught, I'm not going to do it because I want to represent God. Okay? That's a good one. Anyone else? Yeah? Okay. Um, so, so this is very much related to that godly example. So fruit, especially love, uh, etc. You know, expressing love, God's love. So representing God and God's character to people. Yeah, very good. Anyone else? So godly example or Christ-likeness. It's just um, being Christ-like. Okay, yeah, so representing God. Very good. Anything else? Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Can you can you sort of be a bit more specific and give an example of that? In in what sense? So making wise decisions. So so on the one hand, the decisions you make could also be 
loving people or not loving people on the one hand. Yeah. Okay, so, so for instance, what decisions you make could have an influence, say, on social justice. You know, so, sorry to using the same example the whole time, but, but if a, 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 you know, a public servant decides to be corrupt, it has influence on people to whom they must deliver services, and the poor suffer because of that. So it's a decision that has a consequence for social justice. Okay, so um, let's say social justice um, and decisions. Anyone else? So, so what, 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 does, what does that mean? Because, I mean, that's quite a, a, a big scripture. It says, whatever you do, work at it, what does it say? Heartily, as unto the Lord. So, so but I mean, what does, what does that mean? What does it mean to work at it heartily? And what does it mean to work at it as unto the Lord? Okay, so let's say excellence and diligence. That those are actually ways of representing God. Um, what does it mean to work as, as unto the Lord? Because that, that talks a bit about your motive. We haven't spoken about that yet, but what, what is the motive with which you work? And, and what, what does that mean? Anyone? What is the motive there? Behind working as unto the Lord. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. doing what's best for people if we do what's most pleasing to God. Um, so in other words, working for, to please God and to glorify God and, and out of thankfulness for God. So um, let's say glorify God. Okay, as the motive behind it. Anything else? Yes. Mm-hmm. Where do you see, receive your main reward? Do you mainly work for a salary? Or do you mainly work to hear God say, well done, good and faithful servant? But then there's the question. I mean, your everyday work, you know, you're making coffee, you're, you know, crunching numbers, you're, you know, whatever else, you know, marking papers or whatever it is that you do, you know. <clears throat> how can you do that as unto the Lord? You know, how, how can a... A Christian teacher mark papers in a different way from a non-Christian teacher. I mean, you, you can, you can, there are some, 
you know, jobs with which it's easier. You can say, okay, as a teacher, I want to be an example. I'm working with people. I'm working with impressionable kids. So I want to make a positive, godly impact on them. But what about a Christian shoemaker or Christian plumber? How do you do Christian? How do you do plumbing different as a Christian, for instance? Can you do it differently? <laughs> And I was to take care of resources the way God would have. Yes, there was a hand over there. That, that's a good question. You know, is it one or the other? Is it both? You know, is it neither? Um, is God just in, interested in how you do your work or is he also interested in what you do? And, and then... Yeah? Wherever he leads, yeah. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't have to be for the rest of your life you're going to be an occupational therapist, necessarily. Um, you're going to follow Jesus, and for, but, but for now, that is what he's led you to do. Good. So, so building the church, and 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 how how do you see that happening um, specifically? So ministering and witnessing, yeah, I mean, definitely, absolutely. Um, if if we are disciples and disciple makers, then a place that we should do it is at work too, definitely. Um, some people though would see that as the only purpose. I only go to work, you know, to witness and make disciples, and I cannot really find any purpose in the actual work that I do. Because, because, I'm not saying you saying this, but but some people could say. Um, yeah, it's not really important what work you do. I, I just, I work to live. So, so my main thing is uh, not, I work to make money and live all right, but, you know, so I have a place where I can witness to people. But obviously I think it's, it's, it's more than just that. But, but it definitely at least includes that, like you were saying, at the very least.
Okay. Um, so being led by the Spirit and using opportunities to testify, minister to people, but also doing your work the way that the Holy Spirit leads you. Is that what you're saying? Okay. Okay, dependency on God, working in dependence on God. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, work in a way that, that reveals your dependence uh, on God. Because how else will you point to God unless you also show your dependence on Him? Okay. Was there anyone else who had something that's not up yet? Uh, Why do you want them to to do that? To be themselves, enjoy themselves, to express themselves, to use their gifts and so on? So, so uh, I'm just going to put you being thankful and joyful. Um, I mean, that, that, that pleases God because God loves us. In, in a sense, God does want you to enjoy your work. Maybe not all the time, but at least. So in other words, what they do helps you to get to know them and helps them to get to know themselves, and it helps them to grow. The one who's good at art grows by, develops that art, what you call it, talent, you know, that actually comes from you as the father, <laughs> or maybe from the mother, who knows, <laughs> but more likely from the mother, right, um, um, <clears throat> from Bianca, but... Um, in other words, another reason why we work is growing. So that we can grow. And God delights in it to see us growing, maturing, taking the st- developing the things that he put inside of us. Yes, Lucy.
So, so just relationship. One of the best ways to build relationship is to do things together. So the whole idea of relationship and, and teamwork, for instance, um, is, is very prominent um, in the Bible. Sorry, all right, ugly. Teamwork. Um, and there's a strong relational aspect to the work that we do. Or there should be a strong relational aspect. Okay? We're going to go through the, you know, the, the biblical passages in a moment and, and see that confirmed. Um, anything else? I mean, there's one that, that's very obvious. Um, if you're a lawyer who benefits from the law you're practicing, if you're a teacher who benefits from the teaching that you're doing, if you're an engineer who benefits from the engineering that you do, if you're a civil servant who benefits from that. So what does that tell you about the work that we do? Serving. Serving others. Benefiting and serving others. Right? I mean, that's a big reason why we do the work that we do, is to serve other people. Okay? Anything else? Okay. Yes, Lucy. Pay your taxes. Yeah, um, you can say the greater good. <laughs> Hopefully. If I, in the loose sense of the word, if our taxes are actually used uh, properly. But <clears throat> um, you, you, another reason is to support yourself. We already sort of implicitly mentioned that. Support yourself um, and your family or whoever you're responsible for. Okay. I, I mean, yeah, anyone want to add to that? Yeah. Um, why would you solve the problems? I think that would fall under serving and, and the common good as well. But, but that would be one way of, of, of serving the common good or, or serving other people, uh, would be by solving problems. Um, anything else? There's one thing I thought of now that sort of jumped my mind. Yes, Tavong. Oh, that's good. That's good. Yeah. God set us an example because he wants us to rest. In other words, he doesn't only want us to work. <clears throat> but he wants us to rest, but then also rest in a specific way. And we're going to speak about that in a moment. Now, now here's, the, here's the question. Is there purpose in the, in the actual work that you do? Um, yes, it could be serving. It could be glorifying God. And so on. Next time, when we next month, when we speak, we're going to dig in and actually look 
at what is the purpose of your work. We're going to get much more specific. Like I said, we're doing a helicopter ride this evening, and sort of just an overview. Uh, next, next time we're going to be much more specific. So what I'm going to do next time is I'm going to let all the lawyers get together, all the programmers, all the teachers, all the artists, all the, you know, engineers, all the, you know, whatevers, uh, get together, and then they're going to sort of, everyone in the same industry, and then they're going to sort of figure out in our industry, what does it look like being a Christian lawyer? How would a Christian lawyer look different? How would a Christian plumber look different? Can a Christian plumber look different? So we're going to get very specific next time. So if we don't get to that, don't worry. Uh, we, will, we will get to that. Uh, we won't get it to it this evening, but we'll get, it, get to it next time. Okay, so <clears throat> here's a few things um, I, that, that sort of stand out. Um, part of our, a big part of our purpose, if you look at Genesis 1 and 2, and, and, and at creation, and what creation says about our purpose is, um, it says, God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, okay? In other words, um, a big part of our purpose, and, and this all relates to our work, is to reflect God's image. I'm writing so ugly. Where's the eraser? Okay. To um, reflect God's image. And, and we mentioned that, the character, the godly character. That was, in fact, the first thing that, that we mentioned. The godly character, that, that we want to be like God. That we wanna, it's not just about what we do, it's about how we do it. Doing it like God, doing it in a way that reflects God. Doing it in a, in a way that, that um, it, basically in the way that God would have done it, if he'd done it. Okay? Uh, think about it this way. Uh, there's an image of <clears throat> Nelson Mandela in Santon, right? Where was it? In, in Nelson Mandela Square, you know, big statue of him. What is the purpose of that image, of that statue? <clears throat> What's supposed to happen when you look at that statue? What are you supposed to think about? You're supposed to think about Madiba, Right? In other words, the, the statue points to the one of, which, of whom the statue is an image and is supposed to glorify that one. So you're supposed to think of Madiba and think, oh, he was a great man. Okay? And likewise, if we are images of God, we're supposed to point to God like that statue points to Madiba. And when people look at us, they're supposed to think about God and glorify him. Reflecting. That's a big part. A very big part. And that affects how we do everything, including all of our work. Okay? Um, and another, so, so that's sort of a, a purpose of being, being like God. Then another one is to represent. Okay? To represent God. And that's more purpose of doing. How do we not only be like God, but act like God? Represent him. In other words, God specifically appointed humans to take care of and rule creation on his, in his stead, on his behalf, as he would have done it. Um, and, 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 and there the question is not just how would God have acted, but what would God have done? What would Jesus have done in this situation, if he were in this situation? Okay? So to represent God, um, to be his representative. 
Um, another, another one that we see, and you guys know I like alliterating. <laughs> so another one that we see is um, relating. We also mentioned this. And Lucy mentioned this as well. God specifically says it's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. And there's a few different things going on here. But one of the main things is the reason why we're called to relate like God is because we're made to be like God. Um, I, I say this often, but Adam, it was not good for... God says... Looked at all that he created and was good, it was good, it was very good. But in the midst of all the good, good, very good, there's something that's not good. And the not good was not that there was something wrong with Adam. There was something right with Adam. He was like God. But he couldn't fully represent God because uh, God is a plurality. Let us make man in our image. He's one God, but multiple persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In other words, God has eternally been in relationship in the Trinity for eternity past. God is inherently relational God. And in that sense, he's very different from the God of Islam, for instance, who was all alone on his lonesome, onesome for all of eternity. So you cannot say that relationship is important to him. And that's why the Quran, as far as I know, never says that Allah loves his servants. Because relationship cannot be important to him if he lived for eternity past all by himself. But the God of the Bible is a plurality, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he created us in his image to also have relationship like he has relationship. So even in our relationship, we express that. And and that's why it's important for work that we have a community where we encourage one another. Because as we're going to see, there's a fall as well, and work is not always easy. Okay? So we have a community where we encourage one another. Uh, but that even the work that we do, how we do that work is not alone. It's not good for man to be alone. I'll make him a helper comparable to him. What does a helper do? Helps you do what you're supposed to do. In other words, you don't, God never intended. It's not good for man to do things alone. God intended us to do teamwork. So, so the whole issue of working together in relationship as teams at work, not doing our work by ourselves is, is very fundamental to whom God created us to be and the purpose that he has for us. Does, it, does that make sense? So teamwork and all that kind of stuff is much more important to God than we often realize. Working together with others is much more important. Now, that doesn't mean that a Christian cannot do a, a job where, like writing or whatever. But even, I mean, even those jobs that, that seem to be done alone, you're actually not doing them alone. You actually very much need other people. Even if it's not directly working in a team, indirectly you need other people and you work with other people and for other people. So relating is, is, is an, another one. Another one, he says, and let them rule, rule over the earth and subdue it. Okay, so ruling. Um, in other words, <clears throat> God as the creator rules creation, but he has delegated the ruling of earth to mankind and said, you rule on my behalf in my stead, as I would have. Um, And that means, and and when he says, rule over it and subdue it, this is very fascinating because it means that God created creation, but he left it underdeveloped. And then he sends us to care for it and to cultivate it. And we're going to talk about that a lot more next time. 
What does it mean? What is that metaphor, that gardening metaphor of cultivating? When you cultivate something, you, you create order and you bring out what is hidden but inherent in creation. And almost every single industry you can see in that way. How do you as a, well, a farmer is obviously easy to, to look at what's cultivating. But as an engineer, you cultivate. You, you take raw material, put it together and create stuff. <clears throat> lawyers. What's the raw material that lawyers work with? You're a lawyer, aren't you? What do lawyers work with? <laughs> Problems that, that, that come up because of what? Between people. In other words, relationships. Yeah. In other words, if you think about it carefully, the raw material that lawyers work with is human relationship. And feelings. <laughs> yeah, that go along with relationship. In other words, <clears throat> lawyers come in when laws that are supposed to govern human relationship are broken. Okay? When I steal from you, I'm relating to you in the wrong way. When I assault you, I'm relating to you in the wrong way. When I've made a contract with you and I break it, I'm relating to you in the wrong way. And that's when lawyers come in. In other words, lawyers are actually got a very good and noble job, you know, to make sure that human relationships are actually done properly. That's good. I mean, lawyers have a bad rap in, <laughs> in Hollywood and in the media and so on because obviously, you know, that has been abused. I mean, especially in America, you know, where many movies and TV programs are made, um, often lawyers have abused, you know, their position and, and, and not actually been interested in the relationships. But if, if you as a Christian lawyer think about it and say, okay, but it's all about relationship and how to best serve human relationship, then you're going to do it differently. You're going to think about it differently. You're going to think, I'm actually serving a purpose here. There's, there's genuine purpose here as a lawyer, not just... I do law to make money, to give to the church, and to take care of my family, and so that I have people to witness to. That also, but the actual law work that I do has purpose. I am helping regulate and cultivate and care for human relationships. In, <clears throat> in some others, it's, it's, it's a lot easier, for instance, in education, whether it's school or whatever, teaching people and helping people grow and develop their potential. You know, you work, the raw material you're working with is, is people and helping them to grow, cultivating people. Uh, in art, it's expressing reality. And as a Christian, you'd want to express reality in a way that, that portrays reality as it truly is, as God reveals it to be, and that ultimately portrays the ultimate reality, which is God and the gospel. Can you see... Um, so all, all of those things are there. But, but ruling is bringing out. Cultivating, ruling, subduing is bringing out. Ordering, taking care of, managing, and bringing out what is inherent. So, I mean, God, Adam didn't know it, but God put all the, the stuff, the potential in creation to create a data projector. Adam didn't know about electricity, but God already put it there for us to discover as human beings and to, to you know, develop, to cultivate. Plastic, um, glass, conductors, silicon, all those kind of stuff to make chips and, and lenses and uh, electrical wiring. God put all of those things in creation, but he left it hidden for us to discover, to develop, to cultivate as we rule as part of our ruling over it 
And when we do that, when we discover things that God put there for us to discover, we are fulfilling our purpose and glorifying God. Does that, does that make sense to you? Have you ever thought about it in that way? <clears throat> um, so ruling, another thing that it says, it says, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it, rule over it. So, reproduction. And, and, and that is there particularly on a physical level. But God actually wants us to reproduce ourselves in more ways than just that. And we see that especially in the New Testament where, uh, I mean, here God says to people before they've fallen, in other words, people who are created in God's image and have not yet fallen from God's image, reproduce yourself. In other words, reproduce the image of God in the world. The New Testament equivalent of that is go and make disciples. Right? Reproduce the image of God in the world. But reproducing ourselves, in other words, <clears throat> if you're working, your job is not just to do the work well, but to reproduce others who can do that work well. Not just to do that work in a way that represents God and reflects God's image, but to reproduce others who can do that work in a way that represents God, reflects God, and, 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 and represents God. Does that make sense? And then the one Tabang mentioned, rest. God actually wants us to rest. To rest in what, what we have done, but even more importantly, to rest in what He has done. And we'll get to, to that in a moment. So there's a rhythm. Uh, remember the, the, the commandment, the Sabbath commandment in Scripture? It doesn't just say that we must rest. It says, six days you shall do the work. Do all your work. You know, it's, it's, it's not just a command to rest. It's a command to work as well. It's a command to work for six days, and it's a command to rest for one day. Okay? So there, there's, a, there's a rhythm of, of working and resting that, that God wants us to enter uh, into. So, so this is just some of the things that I see in those verses. Uh, but most of that we've already covered. Okay? So it's just confirming what we're already saying. Just one thing I want you to, to see is that... <clears throat> The Bible doesn't only tell us, and the Christian worldview doesn't only give us the reasons why we work, but it also shows us a lot of ways in terms of how we work. We work like God. Let me, let me just show you one way that, that you might not have seen in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, different religions, different worldviews have different views about what whether work is good, or if work is good, what work is good and what work is not good. Okay? So, like I said, the, the, the Greeks, you know, used to say, no, working isn't good. Being a philosopher, you know, they actually call, said, you know, you, you, in order to be really useful, you must be unemployed so you can do philosophy. You know? So, white-collar thinking work, you know, that was good. But blue-collar, you know, labor, you know, <clears throat> where you had to use some elbow grease and actually do some uh, manual labor, that was seen as very demeaning. Okay. Um, on the other hand, if you look at communism, it talks about the bourgeoisie, who are the owners of production and factories and land and all that kind of stuff, and they're bad, and the proletariat, who do the blue-collar you know, grunt work, they're the good ones. And you'll see every single 
ideology or worldview or religion will say some work, either all work is bad or some work is good and other work is bad. And, and it will sort of separate into classes. In other words, every other religion or ideology will idolize something in creation and demonize something else in creation. Communists say proletariat idolize, they the solution. They, salvation comes through the proletariat, the working class. The bourgeoisie, you know, the landowners, the capitalism and all that kind of stuff, that's bad. they the problem. They get demonized. The, exactly the opposite with the Greek ideologies and religions. Okay? Now, Christianity is the only religion that says all work can be good and all people are bad. <laughs> the problem is not some other class. It's not the working class or the the you know, the upper class or the thinking class or whatever. It's everyone. The line, Solzhenitsyn said, the line between good and evil runs through the middle of every human heart. Okay? So we are together the problem. We cannot point to someone else and say the problem is out there or they are the problem. We have to say we are the problem. And Christianity is the, uh, you know, the only religion, the only worldview that says that. No, we don't demonize any part of creation because all of creation is fallen. We're going to come to the fall in a moment. But also we cannot idolize any part of creation and say it's the solution. Only something outside of creation can be the solution, which is God. Um, and, and, and look what God does. On the one hand, he does manual labor. Creates man out of the dust of the earth. God digs a ditch. He gets dirt under his nails. He does blue-collar grunt work. Jesus, when he comes to earth, he becomes a carpenter. Not white-collar work, not skilled labor. He's, he's not a philosopher. He's not a general. He's a carpenter. He works with his hands. Okay? But on the other hand, when God creates, he says, let us create man in our image. He plans it. Okay? That's looking more white-collar. <laughs> <Okay? laughs> That's not just you know, doing it, but that's actually planning it, okay? So he plans it, okay? Then it says, he said, let there be light. He said, let there be dry land. Does God need light to see? Does God need light to see? No. Does God need dry land to survive? No. So why did he create the light? Why did he create the dry land? For us. We need light. We need dry land. We need all the other things that God created. So not only did God plan, but he prepared. So planning, preparation. And then <clears throat> he took the ground of the earth and he created mankind. And it's very interesting how he created mankind. From the dust of the earth, and it was a physical aspect, and then he breathed into man the breath of life. The non-physical, the spiritual. And, and mankind is the only part of creation that has that double input, both the material and the non-material, that together make up who we are. In other words, we live on two levels. We live in the natural and the spiritual, the physical and the spiritual, not just on one level. And so many people try to live only on one level, and they think they only exist on one level. And they're like little flat one- or two-dimensional cartoon characters in a three-dimensional world. And there's a whole dimension they're completely missing. But he breathes into man the breath of life. In, in, in other words, planning, preparation, and then execution. He actually makes, he does the stuff, forms man, Adam's body from, from the ground, breathes into him the breath of life. Execution. And then he stands back and he, he looks at what he has made and he says, it's very good. Evaluation. 
Okay, so just look at this. Oh, sorry. Where am I? Um, planning, preparation, execution, and evaluation. And there you have a model for how you can do any work. In all work, all good work at least, you'll do some planning. It's like, what do I, what do I want to do? What do I need to do? Okay. Then you'll do some preparation. You'll get the stuff ready, get all the resources, make sure that everything's ready and right to actually do it. Then you'll, then you'll gather execution where you actually do the work. And then you should stand back if you want to do good work and do some evaluation and say, how is this? How did I do? And actually celebrate what you did. Now, God, what he did was good. There was something to celebrate. He said, what I did was good. Can you see that, that, that just on a fundamental level, there's so much that, that, it, uh, that, that God shows us about and the Bible shows about, about how to do work. Okay, so a lot of things that creation tells us about how we should work. Now we're going to go a lot faster. What does the fall tell us about work and what we should expect from work? Remember what happened? Satan, in the form of a snake, comes to Eve, deceives, eats of the fruit. There's judgment. Okay, so what, what does that tell us? What should we expect of work? Resistance, yeah? Yeah, sometimes it's going to be hard or difficult. God says to... To Eve, in the work of reproducing, you're going to suffer. Because of the curse, because of sin coming in, now the work that you have to do of reproducing yourself physically is not going to be easy. And likewise, to reproduce yourself in other ways is not going to be easy anymore. It's not going to be as natural or easy. It says to Adam, you know, by the sweat of your brow shall you do your work and, 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 and earn your bread. And... You know, you're going to work hard, but the, 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 the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles because it's cursed. In other words, work's going to be hard, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be frustrating. The natural environment, the natural creation is going to resist you in your work. Things are going to break. Things are not going to do what you want them to do or what you expect them to do. So if you work from a Christian worldview and you, you see creation, you see oh, a lot of good things, you know, work is noble, work is serving, work is reflecting God, representing God, all that kind of stuff, good stuff. But when you look at the fall, you also see that work is also supposed to be difficult. The natural environment is cursed and it's actually going to resist us. <clears throat> and that's important to know because otherwise you're going to go and work with all these, you know, la da ideas, you know, all this idealism, you know, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to go, I'm going to change the world. You know, I'm going to make the world a better place. And 10 years later, you're going to be so disillusioned. Because not only does a physical environment resist you, people resist you. Because the first thing that they did when, you know, after they sinned, you know, um, is, you know, they started accusing each other. Adam, where are you? Oh, God, this woman you gave me. <laughs> it's actually your fault, God. <laughs> something wrong. I want to... You know, there's something wrong with this woman that you gave me. She gave me of the fruit and I ate. You know? and, and, you know, Adam says it was Eve, and Eve accused the snake, and the snake, of course, didn't have a leg to stand on. But there was enmity. There was conflict. There was blame shifting. There was, there was accusation. And 
And so you expect not only the physical environment, the ground, to resist you, you expect people to resist you. So you try and make, as a lawyer, you try and make people's relationships better and sort out their relationships, but they don't always want that, as an example. You try as a teacher to teach people, but they don't actually want to learn. You try as a manager to lead and manage people and help them grow and develop, but they don't actually want to. Okay? So you expect resistance not only from, from, the, from the physical ground, metaphorically, but from the people around you. But not only that. <clears throat> In the beginning, it was this snake, actually. Satan, a spiritual entity who deceived Eve and Adam, ultimately. And which you expect not only resistance from the physical ground and from the human people, but you expect resistance from the spiritual realm, from spiritual entities. So, so in other words, to, to make this very simple, I, I think Christianity gives us a very positive and optimistic in many ways view of work, but it also gives us a very realistic view of work where it says physically, relationally, spiritually, there's going to be resistance. It's going to sometimes be difficult and even frustrating. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay? What about redemption? The next sort of step in the Christian worldview. Creation, fall, redemption. Christ came and actually did work on the cross. God himself entered into creation. And Jesus says, I have been working and my father has been working. What does that tell us? How does that influence our view of work? How does the cross, in other words, and, and redemption, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, how does that influence our, our view of work? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Yes. In other words, in this fallen world where there's resistance, you know, physically, relationally, and spiritually, there can also be redemption. How does the redemption on a physical level look? <clears throat> So if we say that in the fall, there's a physical uh, or material, um, there's relational, and there's spiritual resistance. How, how does the redemption of that look? How does the physical redemption look? Mm-hmm. But, but how does it come about? Okay, okay. If, the, if, the, if the physical resistance, how did the physical resistance come about? How do we learn about it in Genesis 3? It's not a trick question. God tells us, right? What does he say? What does he say to Adam? Cursed is the ground because of you what did he say in the beginning to adam and eve and god blessed them and said be fruitful and multiply in other words we went from blessing which god intended in the beginning to cursing resistance okay so what what will redemption look like the curse being broken and being replaced again with blessing Okay. Now, I, I, I want to move on quickly because I want to f- finish up, and I want to keep you guys too long. We, we're almost done. 
we've, we've probably all heard those stories about the guys in South America where there was a revival that broke out. They prayed for the land, that God would break the curse and, and bless the land, and they all of a sudden started producing, you know, pumpkins that are this big, you know, and the, the ground just flourished as they were praying for it and as they were blessing it. And, and that's one example, an easy way to see in terms of farming, how God turns the curse around, breaks the curse, and actually replaces it, at least to some extent, with blessing. Maybe not to the extent that it will ultimately be. So we as Christians can say, God, we are not only objects of redemption, we are agents of redemption. And we want that the redemption that we experience through Christ dying for us and breaking the curse over our lives and replacing it with blessing. We want to also extend that as agents of redemption, firstly to the physical realm, and pray for the stuff around us. So if you're an engineer, you pray for your equipment. If you, um, on, on a relational level, if you're a lawyer, you pray, pray for your clients. If you're a teacher, you pray for your students. And, and you pray that God would break curses and replace them with blessing, that they'll be more receptive, that those students will be more receptive to learn, more eager to learn, and not only learn, but learn the right stuff. Learn wisdom, grow in wisdom. Okay? Not only that, <clears throat> but if you look at Genesis, God worked from day one to day six. On day six, at the end of day six, he created Adam and Eve. Okay? And then it says God rested on day seven. Day seven was day seven for God, but it was day one for Adam. In other words, the very first thing that Adam experienced was rest. We think of it as day seven, but for Adam it was day one. The very first thing that Adam did was to enter into God's rest. So we start not by working, but by resting in what God has done. And then out of that, we work. And that's what redemption also tells us. If, if, if There's this uh, watchman Nee, a well-known um, Chinese Christian writer. He, he wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians, and he called it Sit, Walk, Stand. Where he divides Ephesians into three portions. The first portion says, we are seated with Christ in heavenly places. Now, what do you do when you sit? When you sit, you are not carrying your own weight. Something else is carrying your weight. Okay? In other words, the Christian walk starts by not working, by not carrying our own weight, but by having someone else. We are seated in Christ in heavenly place. In other words, Christ carrying our weight. Okay? Sit and then walk out of that place of rest. You can walk in love, walk worthy of the gospel, walk in the light. All those things that Ephesians says. And then out of that, stand. Stand against the in enemy. Stand against the evil one. So walk in love. Relational redemption. Okay. Walk in the light. Truth. Okay. But then stand. You know, fighting against re um, the, the spiritual resistance and the spiritual curse in, 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 uh, of the evil one. Okay. Does, does that make sense? Okay. I'm, I want to finish with this. <clears throat> Recreation. What does the fact that we're part of a fallen creation, but we expect a new creation that will be perfect. What does, how does that influence our work? Hope, yeah, that's good. Hope for what?
quickly want to play you this. I'm going to play it a little bit faster so we can actually get through it. But just listen to what uh, Tim Keller says, because I, I think he, he explains it beautifully here. Um, this is less than 10 minutes, and I'm, I'm going to end with this. So I'm going to play a portion of an audio book. Um, it's, it's a book by Tim Keller. I would recommend it if you want to understand purpose in work. This is a very good book. Um, Every Good Endeavor, it's called. Okay? So uh, get that for yourself. Uh, well worth your while. So listen to this. When J.R.R. Tolkien had been working on writing The Lord of the Rings for some time, he came to an impasse. He had a vision of a tale of a sort that the world had never seen. As a leading scholar in Old English and other ancient Northern European languages, he knew that most ancient British myths about the inhabitants of fairy, elves, dwarves, giants, and sorcerers, had been lost. Unlike the myths of the Greeks and Romans, or even of the Scandinavians. He had always dreamed of recreating and reimagining what an ancient English mythology would look like. The Lord of the Rings was rooted in this lost world. The project required creating at least the rudiments of several imaginary languages and cultures, as well as thousands of years of various national histories, all in order to give the narrative the necessary depth and realism that Tolkien believed was crucial for the tale to be compelling. As he worked on the manuscript, he came to the place where the narrative had divided into a number of subplots. Major characters were traveling to various parts of his imaginary world, facing different perils and experiencing several complicated chains of events. It was an enormous challenge to unfold all these sub-narratives clearly and then give each a satisfactory resolution. Not only that, but World War II had begun, and though the 50-year-old Tolkien was not called into the military, a shadow of war fell heavily on him. He had experienced firsthand the horror of World War I and had never forgotten it. Britain was now in a precarious position, with invasion imminent. Who knew if he'd survive the war even as a civilian? He began to despair of ever completing the work of his life. It was not just a labor of a few years at that point. When he began The Lord of the Rings, he had already been working on the languages, histories, and stories behind the story for decades. The thought of not finishing it was a dreadful and numbing thought. There was in those days a tree in the road near Tolkien's house, and one day he arose to find that it had been lopped, and mutilated by a neighbor. He began to think of his mythology as his internal tree that might suffer the same fate. He had run out of mental energy and invention. One morning he woke up with a short story in his mind and wrote it down. When the Dublin Review called for a piece, he sent it in with the title Leaf by Niggle. It was about a painter. In the first lines of the story, we are told two things about this painter. First, his name was Niggle. The Oxford English Dictionary, to which Tolkien was a contributor, defines niggle as to work in a fiddling or ineffective way, to spend time unnecessarily on petty details. Niggle was, of course, Tolkien himself, who knew very well this was one of his own flaws. He was a perfectionist, always unhappy with what he had produced, often distracted from more important issues by fussing over less important details, prone to worry and procrastination. Niggle was the same. We are also told that niggle had a long journey to make. He did not want to go. Indeed, the whole idea was distasteful to him, but he could not get out of it. Niggle continually put the journey off, but he knew it was inevitable. Tom Shippey, who also taught Old English literature at Oxford, explains that in Anglo-Saxon literature, the necessary long journey was death. Niggle had one picture in particular that he was trying to paint. He had gotten in his mind the picture of a leaf, and then that of a whole tree. And then, in his imagination, behind the tree, a country began to open out, and there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land, and of mountains tipped with snow. 
Nigel lost interest in all his other pictures. And in order to accommodate his vision, he laid out a canvas so large he needed a ladder. Nigel knew he had to die, but he told himself, At any rate, I shall get this one picture done, my real picture, before I have to go on that wretched journey. So, he worked on his canvas, putting in a touch here and rubbing out a patch there, but he never got much done. There were two reasons for this. First, it was because he was the sort of painter who can paint leaves better than trees. He used to spend a long time on a single leaf, trying to get the shading and the sheen and the dewdrops on it just right. So, no matter how hard he worked, very little actually showed up on the canvas itself. The second reason was his kind heart. Neil was constantly distracted by doing things his neighbors asked him to do for them. In particular, his neighbor, Parrish, who did not appreciate Niggle's painting at all, asked him to do many things for him. One night when Niggle senses, rightly, that his time is almost up, Parrish insists that he go out into the wet and cold to fetch a doctor for his sick wife. As a result, he comes down with a chill and fever, and while working desperately on his unfinished picture, the driver comes to take Niggle on the journey he has put off. When he realizes he must go, he bursts into tears. Oh, dear, said poor Niggle, beginning to weep. And it's not even finished. Sometime after his death, the people who acquired his house noticed that on his crumbling canvas, his only one beautiful leaf had remained intact. It was put in the town museum, and for a long while, leaf by Niggle hung there in a recess, and was noticed by a few eyes. But the story does not end there. After death, Niggle is put on a train toward the mountains of the heavenly afterlife. At one point on his trip, he hears two voices. One seems to be Justice, the severe voice, which says that Niggle wasted so much time and accomplished so little in life. But the other, gentler voice, though it was not soft, which seems to be Mercy, counters that Niggle has chosen to sacrifice for others, knowing what he was doing. As a reward, when Niggle gets to the outskirts of the heavenly country, something catches his eye. He runs to it. And there it is. Before him stood the tree, his tree, finished. Its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind that Niggle had so often felt or guessed, and yet had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree, and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It is a gift, he said. The world before death, his old country, had forgotten Niggle almost completely, and there his work had ended unfinished and helpful to only a very few. But in his new country, the permanently real world, he finds that his tree, in full detail, is finished. It was not just a fancy of his that had died with him. No, it was indeed part of the true reality that would live and be enjoyed forever. I've recounted this story many times to people of various professions, particularly artists and other creatives, and regardless of their beliefs about God and the afterlife, they are often deeply moved. Tolkien had a very Christian understanding of art, and indeed of all work. He believed that God gives us talents and gifts so we can do for one another what he wants to do for us and through us. As a writer, for example, he could fill people's lives with meaning through the telling of stories that convey the nature of reality. Nigel was assured that the tree he had felt and guessed was a true part of creation, and that even the small bit of it he had unveiled to people on earth had been a vision of the true. Tolkien was very comforted by his own story. It helped exercise some of Tolkien's fear and to get him to work again, though it was also the friendship and loving prodding of C.S. Lewis that helped get him back to the writing. Artists and entrepreneurs can identify very readily with Nigel. They work from visions, 
often very big ones, of a world they can uniquely imagine. Few realize even a significant percentage of their vision, and even fewer claim to have come close. Those of us who tend to be overly perfectionistic and methodical, like Tolkien himself, can also identify strongly with the character of Niggle. But really, everyone is Niggle. Everyone imagines accomplishing things, and everyone finds him or herself largely incapable of producing them. Everyone wants to be successful rather than forgotten, and everyone wants to make a difference in life. But that is beyond the control of any of us. If this life is all there is, then everything will eventually burn up in the death of the sun, and no one will even be around to remember anything that has ever happened. Everyone will be forgotten, nothing we do will make any difference, and all good endeavors, even the best, will come to naught. Unless there is a God. If the God of the Bible exists, and there is a true reality beneath and behind this one, and this life is not the only life, then every good endeavor, even the simplest ones, pursued in response to God's calling, can matter forever. That is what the Christian faith promises. In the Lord your labor is not in vain, writes Paul in the first letter to the Corinthians, chapter 15, verse 58. He was speaking of Christian ministry, but Tolkien's story shows how this can ultimately be true of all work. Tolkien had readied himself through Christian truth for very modest accomplishment in the eyes of this world. The irony is that he produced something so many people consider a work of genius that it is one of the best-selling books in the history of the world. Okay. Can you see how the fact that we believe in a new creation gives us hope? In other words, the little that I do, it's going to be frustrating, it's going to be hard. I will never accomplish all that is in my heart and even comes from God's heart. I, I, will in, I, I will leave my work here on earth incomplete, but in the new creation it will be complete. In other words, we are, in a sense, as the church, a foretaste of the new creation to other people. And when we get, in a sense, we're, what we're doing is just a foretaste of what we do for God, the work that we do for God, who we are, the community that we are. We're the new covenant, new creation community. We are a foretaste of the new creation that's to come. And like Nigel, we're going to be frustrated in that none of us will completely fulfill all the work that is in our hearts to do. But one day when we come to the new creation, we will see the fulfillment of what we try to do in the old creation. As teachers, we will see children who have learned, who are learning the way we wish they would. As lawyers, we'll see people who are relating as we try to help them to relate in a proper way. As engineers, we'll see cities <laughs> that we maybe thought we tried to build, or technologies even, that we try to invent but didn't quite succeed in. We'll see them in the new creation. And that's an encouraging thought. That means that our work is not useless, pointless, and just frustrating. There is hope in it. And that, I want to close with this, is a Christian worldview of work. Look at it through creation, through the fall, through re redemption, and through recreation. And it gives us the most powerful vision of what work and what it could be and what it should be. There's nothing that can compare with it. And we can go out there in the workplace and we can work in a way that people out there have never seen and that will inspire them and that will point them to God and that will give them hope too.
Let's stand and pray. Thank you, Lord God, that you work. You have worked, you have been working, and you are working. Jesus, that you have been working, that you are working, and that we can join in your work, and that each of us can, Lord, work hard, but, Lord, not just experience the curse, and not just experience frustration. Yes, we will experience some frustration and some difficulty. It will be it will be difficult sometimes, but we have lots of hope and we can partner with you and we can give expression to who you are and what you would have done in this world. And Lord, that's what we long for. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help every single one of us to connect what we do on a daily basis, what we do in our day job with your purpose and with what you teach about work. We pray, Lord, that we'll be a community who together discovers what your word has to say about our work and how we ought to do it, and that we'll make a difference everywhere we work because we work differently, not like this world, not for the reasons that this world works, but like you and for the right reasons. Please help us with that. We don't always get it right. Please help us with that. Please give us the grace to do that, to be a community that puts the hope of the new creation on display. And that constantly in in our failures and our successes points towards you, the only true God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want you to, as as homework, go and think about how how can your work that you do, whether it's being a stay-at-home mom or being, um, you know, a a farmer or a teacher, whatever it is, how can that be a calling? Uh, And we'll talk a little bit about that next time and and let's make this start of a bigger conversation talk to one another about this give your insights okay lord bless you thanks for listening to this message from shofar joburg may the grace you receive produce god's greatest glory and your greatest good for more information and sermons please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com